It's close to the most wonderful time of the NBA year, the start of free agency. After reviewing the NBA draft, I'm joined by a very special guest who a lot of you may know. Brody Hannon is a fellow Loyola graduate who's widely known for capturing all of the action in Cubs sports, in addition to other community events in and outside of Loyola. After his interview, I take a deep dive into the whole Kyrie Irving situation and how Russell Westbrook is involved. Season 4 of the Boundless and Ballin' podcast starts right now. What's good, everyone? It's Jordan Pekka, the now host of the Boundless and Ballin' podcast, and man, oh man, do we have a lot to get into today. First off, a review of the NBA draft. I actually wrote an article giving out awards from the draft, and I'll be detailing three of those right now. First off, the winners of the 2022 draft, in my opinion, were the Houston Rockets and Detroit Pistons. The Rockets drafted Jabari Smith Jr. at number three overall, as well as Tari Eason at number 17, and Ty Ty Washington Jr. at number 29. The Pistons. I just gotta say, Troy Weaver is an absolute wizard. He drafted Jaden Ivey at number 5 and traded for Jalen Duran, who was selected 12th by the Thunder. That pick went to the Knicks before finally landing in Weaver's hands. The Pistons now have a core that includes Cade, Cunningham, Killian Hayes, Ivey, Duran, and Sadiq Bey. They could be a major threat as contenders in a few years. We'll have to wait and see. The Rockets. Uh, that top three was very, very shaky. Uh, a lot of people expected, and I did as well, Jabari Smith to go number one. He winds up falling to the Rockets at three. Tari Eason, a solid combo forward out of LSU, a great defensive-minded wing, going to them at 17. And Ty Ty Washington, I'll have more on him later. But uh, yeah, he's a great guard out of Kentucky for sure. The loser of the draft, the New York Knicks. Oh my goodness, where do I even begin? Knicks fans expected themselves to welcome some new talent in last Thursday's draft, but New York wound up trading the 11th pick to OKC and only drafted Duke wing at Trevor Keels at number 42. The Knicks wound up making three trades on draft night, the first one again with a thunder, uh, trading away the 11th pick, which wound up being Usman Jang, for 2023 protected first-round picks via Detroit, Washington, and Denver. Now, this whole Jalen Duran fiasco, here's where it begins. So the Hornets uh, traded the number 13 pick, which was Duran. He wasn't slash, he wasn't selected 12, my bad. He was selected 13th by Charlotte. Traded to the Knicks in exchange for a plethora of 2023 picks and a 2024 second rounder. From there, Duran and Kemba Walker, who was making 9.5, around $9 million in salary, those two were traded to the Detroit Pistons in exchange for a 2025 first-round pick via Milwaukee. That's protected 1 through 4. So all in all, the Knicks made some trades that opened up some cap flexibility to potentially sign uh, Jalen Brunson. That's been widely known as one of their main targets. But uh, honestly, who knows what the Knicks plan to do? Someone on Instagram commented and called them the New York Next Years, which seems very accurate for that franchise. Oh boy. The biggest steal of the draft, in my opinion, was Ty Ty Washington Jr. He was selected, as I mentioned, 29th overall by the Rockets. He was once a, proje a projected lottery pick and even ranked 14th on ESPN's 2021 Top 100, but he was unable to show his true game at Kentucky for several reasons, and he slid into the late first round. But now, he gets a chance to show out 
in the Rockets' rotation, more than likely backing up Kevin Porter Jr. or John Wall if he winds up playing. Now the Lakers, you got you know I have to talk about what they did in the draft and uh, after the draft as well. They first traded for the 35th overall pick in exchange for a 2028 second rounder and cash considerations, sending those to the Orlando Magic and wound up drafting Michigan State shooting guard Max Christie. Now Christie is projected to be a 3 and D wing. He didn't really play well at State, but he performed very well at the Combine. He shot 64% on spot-up shooting, ranking 7th out of 36th, 60% off the dribble, ranking 15th out of 36th, and 52% on the move, which ranked 15, 15th out of 33rd. In addition, the Lakers also signed Syracuse sharpshooting forward Cole Swider to a two-way deal, as well as Vanderbilt point guard Scottie Pippen Jr., yep, Scottie Pippen's son, to a two-way deal as well. They also, they're not done with NBA, the sons of NBA legends here, because they signed Sharif O'Neal, yep, Shaq's son, to a uh, to a summer league deal to a deal to play with their summer league team. They also signed uh, Fabian White Jr. for the same reason, as well as 26-year-old forward Vito Brown, who most recently played in Spain, and UConn point guard R.J. Cole, rounding out the summer league signings. So all in all, a very active draft night across the association, and it'll be very exciting to see how these rookies play in summer league and their first welcome to the league moments. All right, we are now joined by someone many, many in the Loyola community know. Uh, recent graduated senior and incoming uh, freshman to American University, Loyola Athletics photographer, Brody Hannon. Brody, how are you today, man? Pretty good. Thanks for having me on, Jordan. Of course, absolutely. So uh, let's, uh, let's start from the beginning here. Um, at what age did you get started in photography and uh, who or what inspired you to do it? Yeah, so I started in seventh grade uh, at my middle school. We had some electives that we could take, and I decided I'll sign up for a photography class. Didn't think much of it. And I was kind of just more of a casual photographer uh, until sophomore year at Loyola when I took the digital photography class. Learned a lot about that, and that really grew my love for photography, especially sports photography. Uh, I got access to all the great equipment that Loyola has and got to learn how to use Photoshop and uh, more precise photo tactics. Uh, so I actually had some skill behind the camera instead of just shooting for the sake of taking photos. Nice. And uh, what was your first camera back in seventh grade? It was a Nikon D3500, which is like a base starter camera. Okay. And uh, what advice did you get from others when you were first starting out and how does it help you today? Yeah. So the big one I got from Father Quinn, the uh, photography teacher at Loyola was basically uh, it was just the general idea of when you're taking a photo you're not just trying to get a photo of whatever the subject is you're trying to tell the story and that's been a big thing that I've kept in mind uh, whether it's sports photography or something else but how do you tell the story of the game what's going on if someone just saw that photo as a standalone how does that tell the story of the given play what like what's going on instead of just taking the photo you have to actually position it and keep in mind the context mm -hmm. nice and uh moving on here to uh, your work with Loyola athletics um what were your first thoughts when you first started uh working the games in the, at Loyola yeah so i i was a ball boy at 
uh, at Loyola from elementary school until eighth grade. So I was on the sidelines for those. And I'd always see a couple Loyola student photographers there. But I started freshman year with my starter camera just on the sidelines of freshman football games, um, just taking photos for my classmates, really. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't think much of that. It was still just more of a hobby at that point. And then I got to use the better equipment and I got the actual sideline pass for varsity games starting in sophomore year. And that was really cool for me. Just that was a great experience to learn how to operate on the sidelines. And it is a very different angle that you take uh, from being a fan or even just as a ball boy to being a photographer. You're looking at something different. You're looking at the play differently. You're thinking of where to stand to get the best angle. So it, it was fun. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. And I learned a lot from that sophomore year and where to stand best angles to get shots. Nice. And uh, you kind of mentioned some of them already, but what were some challenges that you encountered throughout your uh, three, four years on the sidelines? Yeah. Uh, lighting was definitely an issue. Uh, it depends on where you go. Uh, obviously lighting is different everywhere. The Loyola gym uh, for basketball and volleyball games in particular has some really tough lighting. It's, there's some old lights in there and it, it is a challenge. Um, and when those doors are open for day, uh, for day games, all that light floods in kind of overwhelms the camera. So it is something to keep in mind just to learn where the light is. And that came over time. I learned where the best places stand to get the best lighting of the players. And then uh, the other big one was just reaching out to different people, uh, especially for away games. I talked to Chris O'Donnell, the athletic director, and communicated with him the week leading up to it. So I would be sure that I was on the list and I'd get my press pass and I'd get everything set up. So I'm not scrambling when I arrive at whatever stadium Loyola was playing. And uh, I mean, throughout your four years there, you, there were certainly plenty of memorable Loyola moments. Uh, what was the favorite, your favorite game that you photographed or top three? Yeah, uh, favorite game would be a little tough. Um, football was, uh, that was one of my bigger sports. I went, I photographed every game the last two years. Um, the, the rivalry win over I mean, St. Francis and Maricosta last year, those were both very memorable for me. Uh, St. Francis in particular, because it, it's a small stadium and the fans are really right on top of the field. Um, so that was really cool. And then obviously to have that walk off field goal to win the game, uh, that was something that I, mean, I was really glad that I got to be a part of that um, and to capture those moments. And then volleyball, um, the Maricosta game is always fun. Uh, this year's past Maricosta game, we swept them. That was a big deal. I've been going to that game since I was a little kid um, and that was, I got some great photos from that game, but it was really fun to get players' reactions in those. So those football games and then uh, the Maricosta volleyball games in particular, those are probably my three favorite. And the I got to go to the water polo championship game. Uh, so that was a really cool experience as well. That was my first water polo game. So I was uh, on the bus ride over, I was kind of looking up different ways to photograph water polo and uh, took me a little while to find the find my groove, but I got some good celebration photos of those guys jumping in the pool after winning. Oh, uh, yeah. And speaking of which, and uh, I'll try and put these on the screen later if we're doing the video 
if I'm putting up the video, but uh, what are some of your favorite photographs that you've taken for Loyola Sports? I know there's so many to choose from. But... Yeah, uh, and the first one that I got published in the LA Times, that's always special for me. It uh, was one of Taj Owen's junior year um, running against, I think, St. Francis. And I, it wasn't it wasn't one of my best photos, but it was really special for me because that was my first one that I got in the LA Times. Uh, my favorite photo overall is actually one of the last ones I took. It was in the CIF SoCal Regional Championship game for volleyball. Uh, it's one of Dylan Klein, uh, great player, obviously. And it looks like his belly button is above the eight foot net. It's an awesome photo. Uh, one of my favorites i i've played volleyball my whole life so i really appreciated all those games and uh that was one that i nailed i think it was that was so that was probably my favorite a little bit of recency bias in there as well but nice yeah there are definitely a few memorable ones mm -hmm. yeah and uh you mentioned briefly you've been published in the la times i mean quite a bit with your photos like talk about the process of how you got started with that yeah, so at the I mean, during COVID uh, in twenty late twenty twenty, uh, Eric Sondheimer, the longtime legendary LA Times high school sports reporter, ran an article about Dylan Klein, and he interviewed him and uh, took a photo of like just of Dylan's face with his phone, and I had photos from the year before, so it was this bad phone photo. So I reached out to him and said. I'm a junior at Loyola High School. If you have any any articles on Loyola students, chances are I have a photo of them. Mm -hmm. So uh, he responded saying, great, thanks. I'll let you know if we're doing one and you can send me some photos. And I developed a good relationship with him where after each game, I would send him the photos uh, or the best ones. And I'd ask him uh, for which photos he needs from other teams, like our opponents. Um, so that was a big, uh, just, really self-advocacy um, working for myself to to get that in and it wasn't it wasn't given to me like I had to reach out I had to make that initial contact and I had to keep sending him the photos and I the LA Times got better photos than phone headshots mm -hmm. I got my photos in, which is always fun to see my name in the LA Times and then uh, it also makes Loyola look good with the with the better quality photos. Mm -hmm. That's just one of several opportunities that you've had. I want to touch on another one and you have the background right behind you. For those who don't know, how did you get started photographing LA Kings games? Because that's a huge deal. Yeah, uh, I've been a Kings fan my whole life and I have a family friend who works with the Kings. So I, I late last year, I decided, oh, I'm just going to reach out to him to see if he can get me to photograph a game. Worst thing he says is no. So I reached out to him and he said, yes, uh, we'd love to have you photograph a game. And he put me in contact with a photographer named Andy Bernstein, who, in case you don't know, he's one of the greatest sports photographers of all time. Awesome. Uh, there's a photo of like, Kobe Bryant dunking in the All-Star game with all the players looking on. Uh, that was uh, taken by him. There's one of uh, Larry Bird and Magic Johnson boxing each other out. Uh, that that was taken by him, the one of LeBron doing the Kobe imitation dunk that was taken by him. So I got to work with him. I got a press pass for the Kings Lightning game uh, in January. And 
uh, he showed me around, he gave me some tips. That was, that was a great experience for me. And hockey is tough to photograph. You have multiple inch thick plexiglass. Mm -hmm. So any, anything directly out of the center line of the camera is out of focus. Mm -hmm. So it took me a while to get adjusted to that. I see. Yeah, you're right down, like right towards the ice in that little plexiglass hole. I can imagine the setup for that has got to be way different than what you're used to. Yeah, uh, you're much more restricted in hockey. Um, and they do have, for the NHL games, they have little holes cut into the plexiglass. For my first game, I was only able to use that for about two or three minutes. Mm. Uh, and then for the next game that I went to, I got to use it the entire game. And uh, there is a big difference, but you are very limited. Whenever the action is near your zone, you have to take the camera out and close the little door mm. so you don't get hit by an 80 mile per hour puck. <laughs> yeah. Uh, were you able to interact with any of the players like in person or through social media? And what were those experiences like for you? Yeah. So I, uh, I was in the tunnel before their warm ups, taking some photos of them, greeting each other. Um, and that was, like that was kind of cool to see obviously it's right before the game you're not talking to them mm -hmm. but it, it was really cool to see that kind of behind the scenes action how the players warm up right before getting on the ice and they're all like uh hitting each other's shoulder pads typing each other up <laughs> nice um you've touched on meeting andy uh earlier on but uh what advice did he give you if any and how has it helped you since then yeah, uh, his biggest advice to me was like, look for more beyond the direct action, mm -hmm. uh, especially in the context of hockey. It is so fast paced. You can't really just focus on who has the puck because you're going to miss something. Mm -hmm. So he instructed me, like, focus on one player for a, like for a couple minutes and just follow that player around with your camera. Get that action. Other, and you'll uh, you'll miss out on some other action, but it'll be worth it because you're more in tune with what's going on mm -hmm. when you're focused on that one player. And that's something that I've been able to apply to different sports. Uh, volleyball season came up right after I photographed those hockey games. So I kept that in mind where I'd focus on one player instead of tracking the ball. And I got better photos out of that. I see. Cool. All right. Moving on to some more uh, general sports photography questions. Uh, what do you think makes for a uh, quote unquote iconic or really good uh, sports photo? So yeah, you have all of the standard uh, components of a good photo. You have to have it in focus, obviously. You have to have it, uh, have the full subject in frame for the most part. There are different exceptions to this, but I think what makes it iconic is more when you, is when you get that context in there. Mm -hmm. When you're able to get like the player's face to show that emotion. So uh, some of the most iconic ones like Michael Jordan crying with the trophy, right? That's one that everyone knows of. And it's because of the context around it. It's not like, it's not an action photo. It's a guy hugging a trophy, but you can understand, like you can instantly relate to that experience of, oh, he just won. He put his heart into this. So I got, I tried to get a few of those uh, right after the, like toward the end of the St. Francis football game, I got a great photo of a couple Loyola players celebrating and you can really see that emotion. I have one from the Maricosta game where uh, there's uh, one of our linebackers just recorded an interception. He gets up and he kind of does a little 
uh, saunter back over to the bench. And in the background of the photo, you see Americost fan flipping him off. It's out of focus, <laughs> but you can see it. And once you once you see that, you can't really unsee it. And I think that's just it's those little details that make the photo so much better. Mm. Um, you, you've mentioned this also as well, but what are some other techniques that you've picked up on as the years have went on? Yeah, definitely looking for new angles. Uh, it can get a little monotonous, especially in sports where there are repeated actions. Football is a little different because you have a different player in frame and you, they're running at a slightly different angle. But basketball especially, that can it's the same action. It's someone going to the hoop mm -hmm. and shooting or getting a layup or something like that. So I would move around the entire gym and the entire field in whatever sport I'm doing to look for a new angle. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would start off by sitting behind the Loyola basket and get photos of the guys hitting jump shots, getting some layups, stuff like that. Then I would move to the back corner and get kind of some overhead shots and move uh, to the corners and get different angles and different heights, especially that's the, that adds drama to it where like for football games, most photographers are just standing up there with a monopod. Mm. I occasionally I'll go down and sit on the grass, sit on the turf. Mm. And that makes the photo, it adds depth and dimension to the photo and really improves the image. Mm, nice. Yeah, I have a final little story. I think it was during probably volleyball, one of the volleyball games I was on the call and I just happened to notice you at the top of our bleachers just like up there with your camera so you yeah. get new angles oh man that's, that's just one way to do it yeah and for a sport like volleyball the net's not moving like you're staying in the same spot the entire time if you're taking 200 photos from the exact same spot they're all going to start to look the same after a while right it also helps me when i'm editing mm -hmm. uh keeps keeps me in into it just looking at the new angles that i get um, so going up high, going low, finding the different spots on the court. Mm -hmm. Nice. Who are some uh, photographers that you've looked up to? Yeah, so Andy Bernstein is definitely one who I've looked up to. Um, and part of it is uh, uh, part of it is just getting in there and getting that action. Mm -hmm. And it's also access. Mm -hmm. um, you have to you have to be able to get in to get the photos. You're not going to get the same photos of a hockey game if you're sitting in the 300 levels, right. right? You have to have that level of access. But once you're in there, it's also what you do with that time and what you're looking for. So that intentionality that he brings is really cool. And then another photographer who I've looked up to is Pete Souza. He was uh, President Obama's White House or Chief White House photographer, and he said uh, he had a movie that came out in 2020 that I thought was really interesting. He said that his job, the way he looked at it was not to be a photographer, it was to be a historian. Mm -hmm. And that's something when I'm doing street photography of a protest or uh, I photograph the election in 2020, you wanna be a historian and you want to have that context in there. It, it applies a little bit less so, but it applies to sports photography as well. You want to capture that moment mm -hmm. so people can look at it five, 10, 20 years from now and still understand what's going on. Right. That's great. Uh, what do you make of the, I guess, the, for lack of a better term, the evolution of photography? Because before, high quality pictures, they mostly required like a DSLR with like really good settings. But nowadays you have iPhones that are really starting to catch up and have those, I guess, DSLR quality type of photos. So what do you make of that? Yeah. And 
the camera and iPhones, they're great. They just can't replicate what you're doing when you're in low light situations or when you need a fast shutter speed. So they're great for portraits and they do get some amazing, you can capture some amazing moments with them. But if you're taking sports photography seriously, you can't use a phone. You have to use a high level camera to get that photo without any grain. And a lot of cameras are moving mirrorless, which is uh, which is great because they're they're lighter, they're more accessible, um, but they still they still have some work to do to get to that higher end. Uh, I don't I don't know any professional photographers who use mirrorless right now, just because the technology is not quite there. They can't get that same action that they get with a DSLR. So it's definitely moving to a more accessible direction for everyone. But if you want to be serious about those higher quality photos you still need to have the higher quality gear absolutely and uh last one in this segment how do you feel about film photography making a comeback i think it's cool i never took film photography but uh from what i've heard from some of my friends who exclusively use film and then transition to digital is it really helps you frame your shots Mm -hmm. because you don't have photoshop with film what you take in the camera is what you get so that level of intentionality is something that it's a good skill to have. Uh, I don't think that film is going to come back to be the primary source of photography, but it's a good way to be intentional about what you're doing and to really put your mind into the photo because there are people who just rely on Photoshop and say, oh, I can edit it later. <laughs> yeah. And uh, transitioning here into some other work that you've done you know, in and outside of Loyola, uh, you were also like very, very involved with the Loyalists over your four years. Um, how would you des- describe your experience with the newspaper, particularly as its creative director this year? Yeah, so it, it is a little interesting. Um, if you're familiar with the Loyalist or a school newspaper, uh, usually the editors are not the ones doing the work. They're, the, they're not writing the articles. They're just fine tuning it. Yep. The photo department is a little bit different where we rely a lot internally. Uh, and part of it is just, you have to be able to trust that you're getting the right photo. So, uh, it, I loved it. Uh, it gave, it gave me an excuse as a sophomore and as a freshman to get out there to photograph, to say, oh, I'm with the loyalists. Mm -hmm. Uh, that way I had some intentional reason to be there. And that like starting with the loyalists really helped me with sports photography as to what I'm looking for. And that evolved into other events as well. So I've photographed the auction, the Loyola auction, and it's very different because you're not capturing an athletic event, you're capturing just a bunch of people at a party. So, but it's still the same rules apply where you wanna capture that moment. You wanna capture the emotion that people get when they win some item. Uh, So that was something that I learned pretty quickly with the loyalist that there, even though you're in a different setting, the same rules, the same general rules still apply. Mm-hmm. Guys, that was going to be my other, my next question, like how working at other loyal events differed from sports, but I guess you hit it on the head. Like as far as um, let's say communicating with other people, I'm sure you have to talk with different people when you're working like interchange or auction or other events, as opposed to Mr. O'Donnell or our, our uh, athletic staff. Yeah, uh, I also learned quite quickly that having a camera in hand is a good way to avoid some other work that you might not want to do. So I was, uh, 
I was working the auction my freshman year and I told the teacher running it, oh, I told the loyalist I'd get some photos of it. Can you just assign me a job that uh, where I can take some photos throughout the night? And he says, oh, start with that and then we'll come get you if we need you. So I was, I had a camera in hand the whole night, just taking photos of different guests and finding different spaces while some of my friends were just uh, working as waiters. Uh, wow. And uh, let's shift to outside of Loyola now. You've also worked with uh, Homeboy Industries and uh, Foster Care Accounts. Uh, what did you take away from those experiences and how did they help you on your overall journey? Yeah, I started working with uh, foster care accounts years ago. They had a Mother's Day event where uh, essentially it's for the foster parents, but the kids are also there and they have a lot of activities for them. So I worked with them. And when I was photographing, I was really thinking of the goal of capture joy of that moment. Like it's a fun event. You want it to be fun. Get that photo of joy. And I also started working with Homeboy Industries for their annual Christmas party with a similar idea capture that joy of the five-year-old girl getting a present, mm. right? Or of someone uh, making a basket to win a prize. Mm. It, that, it's a very different idea of the emotion that you're trying to capture because in sports, you're trying to capture like the intensity of the game and then the joy from the win. Mm. But in these, uh, in these other events, you're trying to capture the joy of basically of just pure happiness. Mm. And it's been a lot of fun. I hope I get to, to do more events like those because it is a fun way to interact with, uh, with the different people who are working there and get, and enjoying the experience. And especially with like the little kids, they love saying, Oh, take a photo of me, take a photo of me. That's awesome. And, uh, I mentioned this at the top, but you're an incoming freshman over at American university. Uh, what are you most excited about over there? Yeah. Um, DC is a great city, so I'm looking forward, uh, just from a photography perspective, to get uh, just to photo to photograph all those events. Uh, there's a protest happening every day in DC, so I can work on that photojournalism idea, and then obviously all the sports teams in the area. So hopefully, I can work with the uh, with the Nationals, with the Wizards, uh, with the Capitals, and get some get some more good photos. That's great. And finally, uh, what advice do you have for anyone who wants to get started in photography or take their photography to the next level? Yeah, the easiest thing I can say is get out there. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's a college football game, a high school JV game, or like your little brother's six-year-old flag football game. Just as long as you're getting out there and getting that experience, you'll they will all translate. Your photos from the six-year-old flag football game won't be as action-packed and intense as the college football game, but they'll still be action photos and you'll still learn how to do that. And it is better at that lower scale to get more, more involved and get more access at, at those games, at, like at your local park, you can go right up on the sidelines and take photos. And th that's probably the best way to gain experience just to get out there. And then uh, another big thing is respect, right? Um, part of why I've been able to photograph these events is having respect and being gracious and uh saying like in my emails asking if I can ride the team bus to a game or if I can photograph the Kings game just saying please and thank you and then uh, after it's over send them your photos and thank them for the opportunity and say you hope you can come back again mm -hmm. so those are probably the two best ways to 
a get involved and b gain experience um but yeah as long as you're out shooting that that's the best way to gain experience nice that's that's awesome man and uh that's gonna be a wrap on this interview brody thanks again so much for doing this i really enjoyed hearing about your journey uh from seven feet onward and of course i and i'm sure a lot of people hope that you continue to do this awesome work up at the next level man that this incredible man thank you yeah thank you all right thank you for having me jordan yeah of course and we'll be back with a little bit more on the balance and balling podcast so stay tuned and finally, I couldn't end the podcast without talking about the latest on Kyrie Irving and the whole Brooklyn Nets debacle. First off, with Kyrie, he and the Nets have stalled on talks about his player option, and there's rumors that he could leave Brooklyn high and dry. Woj also reporting that the situation has grown acrimonious, and if Kyrie leaves, teams are looking at KD's future with Brooklyn as well, but more on that later. Now, if Irving were to be signed and traded, the Lakers and Clippers are among the teams on his list. That's according to Woj. The list also includes the Mavs, Heat, Sixers, and Knicks. But only the Lakers have shown real interest. Woj did propose the idea that Kyrie could sign for LA's taxpayer mid-level exception, which is around $6 million. But, I mean, let's be real. There is no way that he takes a $30 million pay cut just to pay just to play with uh, LeBron and AD. Uh, Bobby Marks on the Low Post podcast said that Kyrie has three options, which are re-sign with the Nets on their terms, sign with another team that has sufficient cap space, no joke, he did use the Knicks as an example, or take the mid-level from any team such as the Lakers. Now, the kicker in all this, no pun intended, is that Kyrie has a $5.5 million trade bonus, which Brooklyn has to pay. Now, for all of Kyrie's issues, I honestly would not mind him on the Lakers at all. I mean, then again, with his current unvaccinated unvaccinated status, he'd only play like 41 home games, and we already have AD missing time, so we certainly don't need another one. The unrealistic dream scenario, for me at least, is that Kyrie somehow opts in for the MLE, and the Lakers trade Russ for depth. But a Russ and Kyrie swap would work just as well. So, and... Speaking of Russ and Kyrie, none of them have opted into their uh, player options and have the uh, until the end of June to do so. If you had Kyrie Irving leaving the Nets on your bingo card, congratulations, it just might become reality. Now, on the Low Post podcast, Zach and Bobby Marks did come up with potential trades packages for Kyrie Irving. The first one involved the Miami Heat, sending Tyler Hero, Duncan Robinson, and three first-round picks for Kyrie but both Lowe and Marks didn't think it would work, or don't think it'd work. The Mavericks, they have them sending a Jalen Brunson in a sign-and-trade, as well as Dorian Finney-Smith. Uh, Bobby Marks also brought up the uh, base year compensation issue, which basically means that the first year of Brunson's deal would be worth half of what he had signed for. There's also hard cap issues on both sides. Lowe also pointed out that the Nets would have to bid to outbid the Knicks for Brunson. The Clippers, uh, both of them said it was a no-go on a Morris, Kennard, etc. And again, the hard cap issue. Marks said that the Clippers only had role players, and both of them don't see why the Clippers would even trade for Kyrie because of a top-heavy roster. The Lakers, they had uh, they had uh, brought up the idea of a three-team trade with Russell Westbrook going to a third team, such as the Oklahoma City Thunder. Nope. And Lowe's, and uh, Zach Lowe's 
most uh, fun scenario and his favorite one, I think, which would be that the Knicks open up cap space for Kyrie to sign and then trade R.J. Barrett and company for Kevin Durant. And speaking of KD, the Low Post also put out fake KD trades. If Kyrie leaves, then what's stopping teams from even trading for Durant in the first place? Teams are preparing for KD to be available for trade come July 1st if, and only if, Kyrie says peace. Bobby Mark's favorite trades include the Phoenix Suns sending DeAndre Ayton in a sign-in trade along with Macau Bridges. Uh, New Orleans Pelicans, uh, Zach Lowe mentioned that, or thought that Zion would be the ideal trade uh, partner, or trade piece, in a, in a potential deal for Kevin Durant. The Grizzlies, they were also mentioned. Uh, other guys not named Ja would basically have to be involved in a trade. Marks and Lowe both unanimous, both agreed that the Raptors would be a great trade partner for KD should he become available with a package around Scotty Barnes. Uh, they mentioned Scotty, Gary Trent Jr., and a ton of draft picks going from uh, the North to Brooklyn. Lowe's favorite trades for KD include the Cavs putting a package around Evan Mobley, as well as Golden State, that's a surprise, sending a deal centered around Jonathan Kaminga, Moses Moody, maybe Andrew Wiggins, and draft picks. Oh boy. Now switching sides to another point guard who might be leaving his team, Russell Westbrook. Uh, Lakers GM Rob Palenka said that Russ has not made a decision on his $47 million player option, but if he does opt in, Palenka and head coach Darvin Ham are ready to embrace him and want him to be focused on defense first. Basically, the idea is great defense will lead to great offense, a widely held team mantra that they expect to fit Russ. Palenka also said, quote, We've been honest about how we think he fits with this team and what we expect of him next year if he decides to opt in and be here. He's ready to embrace the philosophy of defense first as well. He made that clear to Darvin and me if he chooses to come back. That's uh, Palenka being quoted in a NBA.com article. So overall, Kyrie and Russ, the two biggest names arguably to watch for uh, this week. And it'll be very, very interesting see what decisions they make and how it impacts the rest of the league. And that's a wrap on this episode of the Boundless and Ballin' Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The next episode will likely be the morning of free agency, uh, recapping and reviewing the latest rumors from this past week. Until then, I'm Jordan Pekka Stay safe, stay healthy, be well, peace.